0: Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. Going we'll to be back again reading from a, a book by William Edward Lee Dubois called Occult Crime Detection, Investigation, and Verification. And the relevance of this to the West Memphis 3 case is this is. One of the primary uh, texts that the police department used in trying to get their heads around, in part of their investigation, trying to get their heads around what seemed to be some ritualistic aspects to this crime. I'm going to uh, stipulate, as I often have in the past, and continue to say that there's there's no overt, explicit proof that the killing of these three boys was an occult crime or an occult-based crime. What's also evident is that the ringleader, and I think he was the ringleader, uh, I don't think he would have ever carried this out without the help of a very willing accomplice named Jason Baldwin, you probably like the idea of killing these boys just about as much as Jason uh, Damien did, but um, it's not—you know—at no point is it explicit that I'm going to repeat. There's nothing explicitly occult that you could just point to and say, "Yeah, this is an occult crime." There are lots of indicators that, in fact, it was. Uh, and one of the primary reasons I've come to think that is that Damien Eccles does very little that does not have an occult basis. But I'll, I'll stipulate that if you listen to Jesse Miskelly's confessions, many confessions, at no point does he describe what Uh, anything of an occult nature as far as the crime itself. He does describe satanic rituals as part of his confession, but he doesn't tie those explicitly into uh, the killings, except for the fact that he, except for the fact that the, the, what he describes was mutilation of, of animals, dogs and cats. And uh, he later backed off a little bit on that, seemed to seemed to be saying he just made it up. And I, I think it's safe to say that uh, Jesse tended to exaggerate some things in his first confession, that he toned down later on uh, and all those things he exaggerated tended to make Damien and Jason look really bad and tended to make him look yeah present but minimally involved now Some of what I'm going to read today probably has very little to do with the crime. I would stipulate it has very little to do with the crime scene, but I'm going to read it just so part of it is to get an understanding of the mindset of the police and their understanding of the mindset of occult practitioners in this era. I don't vouch for the accuracy of the book. I think in many in I, I if I know something's not correct or questionable, I'm going to say so. Uh, the police' understanding of what they were reading is also somewhat in question, and uh, and Damien's own own take on things he's not to this day. It's not ex, It's so. Incolate and uh, so eclectic very very much in the Corollian mode there's so much thrown into the mix that it's really hard to tell what he explicitly believes except he believes in occultic power he believes in spirit guides he believes in holy guardian angels he believes in, in invoking spirits of one sort or another that that is within his power he believes in the accumulation of spiritual power through magical rites uh, he seemed to believe all that and was doing quite a bit of that in 1993. And he continues those practices today. And if you want to pay him some money, he'll teach you how to do it. Uh, anyway, I'm going to start with a chapter called Magic and Subject Behavior. And he gives a couple of definitions of belief in invulnerability, belief that supernatural beings have granted strength, invisibility, or special protection. Eccles definitely believes in this. Fear of magical retaliation, a reluctance to provide information on occult groups because of the fear of retaliation using magic as a weapon. We know uh, Damien, when he came back from Oregon in the summer of 1992 he felt he was being pursued by occult groups uh, that uh, a certain uh, which was certain which was uh, after him that he was being uh, uh, a, an evil spirit was on his trail so to speak and so uh, Given everything else he explicitly believes, I think it's safe to say he certainly believed this in 1992, 1993, and I suspect, he's. I don't know any reason why he wouldn't believe this today. He may not talk about it that much, and I have certainly haven't listened to all his tiresome videos about occultism, but, you know, there, there's a whole uh, tradition there of um, Magical protection using various spells and rites and practices and and spiritual disciplines to uh, protect yourself from uh, bad influences Not that Eccles actually has any problem with bad influences, but he wants to pick and choose the bad influences that influence him Uh, And belief in spirit guides this is three things three beliefs he mentions at the front here a belief in spirit guides a belief that spiritual supernatural entities provide information that can be relied on yeah he believes in that very explicitly he did in 1992 93 he believes that today he talks about it constantly and uh, I'll mention more about this as we go along Then we get into the text here in Matamoros this is in Mexico, in April of 1989, a member of Adolfo's Adolfo's de Jesus Constanzo's drug smuggling cult drove through a roadblock under the assumption that he was invisible. This action resulted in the raid on Constanzo's ranch and led to the discovery of the largest known number of sacrificial killings by an occult group in this century but you know according to supporters of the West Memphis three there are no such things as occult killings Uh, other subjects who believe in magic do not react normally either their actions may seem foolish poorly thought out or totally unprovoked until it is understood how magic affects each individual subjects behavior magic commonly affects Subject behavior in three ways, a belief in invulnerability, a fear of magical retaliation, and belief in spirit guides. It is critical critical for officers to understand all three effects for their own safety and effectiveness. This is equally true for the traffic officer and for the detective assigned to investigate occult crimes. A subject's belief in invulnerability increases the risk of officer injury during any encounter. If the subject thinks he's bulletproof because of magical spells, he may respond violently to the officer's presence under the assumption that the officer cannot hurt him. In fact, criminal occultists who believe that they are invulnerable are likely to respond violently even if they are significantly outnumbered by law enforcement personnel. There is no safety in numbers with this type of subject but an understanding the belief in invulnerability allows officers to be prepared for unexpectedly violent responses from the subject. Subject's fear of magical retaliation reduces the officer's ability to gather information, intelligence information. Individuals who are usually willing to provide good intelligence information often refuse to tell officers anything about occult groups. This was not true of Damien Eccles. he was the primary source of information and probably a lot of the impetus behind uh, the, all the rumors uh, of magical cult activity in Crittenden County and uh, the years leading up to the months and years leading up to the uh, deaths of Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, and Stevie Branch at the hands of Jesse Miskelly, Jr., Damien Eccles, and Jason Baldwin on May 5th, 1993. He's, he, he's speaking of these, Dubois speaking of these. Subjects who have this fear, he says, they have two interrelated fears that the law enforcement community cannot provide protection against. First, confidential informants may fear that occultists will use magic to discover who they are. And second, they may fear magical retaliation. Members of criminal occult groups take every opportunity to foster the belief that they are capable of magical retaliation Often by starting rumors that they caused the deaths of people who actually died in accidents. Officers must decide in advance how to deal with confidential informants who fear magic. Most subjects who believe in magic cannot be convinced that magic is unable to hurt them and to attempt to convince them otherwise is a waste of the officer's time. A personal strategy compatible with departmental policy that the officer is comfortable with should be developed to deal with this situation. Belief and spirit guides. If an informant within a criminal occult group provides intelligence information on the group's activities, officers must be sure to determine whether the information comes from the informant's own observation or from the informant's spirit guide. Many occultists believe that they have a personal entity called a spirit guide who looks after them. The spirit guide is similar to a guardian angel concept, except that the occultist and his guide and the guide interact on a one-to-one basis. I'm going to stop right there. There's a whole tradition within the occult realm dating back to at least John Dee and Edward Kelly. In Elizabethan England, of um, something called uh, holy guardian angels, And the process of gaining knowledge. There's a phrase they use, but I can't think of the full thing. Anyway, knowledge is part of it. Knowledge in conversation, I think, is what they knowledge in conversation with the holy guardian angel. And uh, Damien Eccles has written, said many things that in, that about his holy guardian angel. And uh, he describes his uh, ritual, which he really couldn't have properly prepared for in on uh, death row. But he describes how he prepared himself for this bit of what's called Enochian magic based on a tradition that uh, that there's some uh special information in the book of enoch which is not a, a non biblical book but dating back to uh, or at least ostensibly dating back to that era the biblical era uh with special you know insights into the occult world uh So, and uh, this is also perfectly in line with the beliefs of Alistair Crowley, who who a great deal of his career was launched on the basis of having encountered this spirit guide in uh, Egypt in the early 1900s. Anyway, uh, officers should realize that a full range of citizens from the occult fringe to the pillars of society believe in spirit guides. Lots of people believe they have guardian angels, Uh, so it's not that strange, but the relationship that the occultists have with their holy guardian angel is quite a bit different than simply having a guardian angel that you feel is watching out for you. The spirit guide of an occult practitioner is as real to him as the officer is. The fact that an occultist believes that his or her information comes from a spirit guide is a major headache if a case gets to court. Magic demons and other assorted entities are not typically admissible evidence. Goes without saying, and it's not really that rel- that is not really particularly relevant to the West Memphis Three case. Uh, Summary. Officers must suspend their own personal views on magic in order to focus on how magical beliefs affect occultists and their actions. And this is where we get into um, a phenomenon I've seen in the West Memphis Three, various West Memphis Three communities, belief systems and theories, uh, people who are dismissive of the idea of the occult and magic, As having any real power whatsoever, also tend to dismiss the idea that these kind of beliefs could affect the behavior of people who believe in these, uh, believe in magic and occult ideas. And the fact is, as prosecutor John Fogelman noted in his closing arguments, is that. Religious, spiritual, magical beliefs—beliefs b- in beliefs very all sorts of belief systems—have played a role in human behavior since the dawn of history, and horrendous crimes have been committed on the basis of beliefs that have no obvious material fact behind them. And I don't know why it would be strange that somebody would commit an occult crime particularly if they were an avowed Satanist or they believe that they were uh, that uh, explicit transgression of uh, normal moral values would somehow prove uh, their spiritual fitness for higher callings for higher levels uh, which, is, which it seems to be a, a, kind of a similar sort of thing and there's almost even the, the, the Nietzschean ideal has an element of that in it. Uh, we saw that with uh, the case of Leopold and Loeb is probably the one the one that comes to mind most notably to me. They killed this Bobby Franks, this little boy, just simply to show that, you know, as a demonstration of their will to power, so to speak. Which can be understood in an occult con- context as a, Luciferian impulse, and that's that's probably a gross perversion of uh, Nietzsche's thought, but uh, it it is a perversion that exists. Understanding magical belief systems allows officers to avoid injury, injury, gather superior intelligence information, and build stronger cases. All well and good. And you can see there's some relevance here to the West Memphis Three case. There's not and some of it is not relevant and we're going to go on to the next little bit here ma- magic and crime magic relates to crime in four distinct ways magic can serve as a rationalization for crime magic can inspire crime magic can cause crime crime can be part of a magical right there are four distinct ways in which magic and crime interact Magic is a rationalization for a crime, in this case the individual carries out a crime on his own initiative and uses his magical belief to rationalize his actions. Magic thus serves as a way of removing personal responsibility for criminal actions. This coping mechanism may happen before, during, or after the crimes, sometimes all three. People who use magic as a rationalization for criminal activity generally have a rather weak and poorly developed magical belief system. Magic is an inspiration for crime. In persons with highly developed magical beliefs, magic may actually inspire a crime. In this case, the magical beliefs cause the crime to be planned. They are taken into account when planning the crime. Now, Eccles had a highly developed magical belief system back in 1993, not as highly developed as it is now with 20-something years of study, but he, at that time, he already considered himself an expert on magic, and in fact, he was apparently fairly well versed in a lot of magical practices and beliefs uh, and was a practitioner of same Um, was this crime planned was it the three murders planned well we know this about it we know Eccles walked through those woods according to his own admission so he initially said he didn't wasn't familiar with the woods and he said, yeah, I walk through there all the time, two or three times a week. Uh, we know he was familiar with the site. We also know that he typically was walking over to, uh, from his home in West Memphis to Lakeshore State's Trailer Park. He was walking over there often in the Mid mid afternoon, about the time Jason to get there, about the time Jason Baldwin would have been getting out of school, so they could hang out, and which would also have been the time the little boys were getting out of school, or were out, been out of school a relatively short time, and were riding their bikes around, and probably, and we know they were going into those woods. Was, Jay, was Damien aware that those boys frequented those woods? I don't know why he wouldn't have been. He went through there frequently. He went there two or three times a week. And they apparently went in there frequently. Not all the same boys all the time. It varied somewhat, but apparently Michael and uh, Chris and Stevie all had gone in there various times in the past, particularly Michael apparently was probably the most common visitor to the woods. It seemed he uh, sometimes Chris went, sometimes Davey went, sometimes uh, Aaron Hutchison went, but uh, you know this little group of boys went into the woods quite often. Now was it planned? So we know that he had the knowledge that these boys were very likely to be in the woods on a weekday afternoon. We know that, uh, Jason got in contact with Jesse Muskelly earlier that week and said that they were planning to go over on that particular day over to West Memphis to, uh, you know, Jesse tells different stories, meet some girls and then it turns out really to beat up some boys and, and you know, um, seems Jesse really didn't mind beating up little children because he had several instances where he had beaten up children in fact he attacked a little girl just a, a month or two before the, the, the killings. Uh, it's just simple fact. He was nice to the friend the children who were friends who were uh, the children of his friends but other kids he didn't mind beating them up. Uh, probably really enjoyed it on some level maybe quite a quite a bit whatever bullies get out of that he got out of it we know that uh, Ken Watkins skipped school that day and never went back after after the killings did not that was his last he stopped going to school on May 5th 1993 he hung out all day with Dominie in particular, getting over there early in the morning. His idea was they were going to hang out all day. That didn't happen. Damien, Damien had an appointment with a mental health center that day. He didn't and his mother drove him around some and there's various conflicting stories about where they were were at particular times. We do know he kept the appointment. Uh, the notes from the doctor that he saw uh, noted his disturbing tendencies and practical thoughts and uh, you know you if you just read that one particular note which is not fully not odd it's one of the few things that's not like very well reproduced in the Callahan notes but you can read it and you get the impression this is a kid who's on a hair trigger he shows up at Dominey's house apparently around the time that uh, Jason's getting out of school maybe a little bit earlier but around that time Jason uh, they were disappointed in because he was supposed to skip school he didn't do it he was still on probation for a shoplifting incident and apparently well, he wasn't doing well in school but he did show up at school and uh in fact he showed up the next day after the killings so he was a dedicated student in that sense but you know it was mostly so he wouldn't get into trouble uh he likes to present a pleasing face to as many people as possible as long as he doesn't have to put in a lot of effort. And we know that they met later that afternoon, all three met, for their appointment later that afternoon. They all uh, Jason and Damien had acquired beer, Jesse Miskelly had acquired a bottle of Evan Williams Whiskey from Vicki Hutchison, and they walked over to uh, uh, Robin Hood Hills this wooded area in West Memphis and drank and with no, seeming no particular purpose except to drink. They could hang out there and drink. There were woods around there they could have gone into. Why go over there? They were waiting for the boys. They were going to beat up the boys and they did. They beat them up. They beat them up. They beat them to death except they drowned them to death, except they stabbed two of them to death. It was a triple kill, which is an occult uh, s- cult style of killing. Overkill, particularly the tr- triple kill, is, has a long, uh, very, very long history dating back to prehistoric times when a sacrificial victim would be killed in three different ways, such as strangulation, drowning, and being hit over the head. And in fact, the boys had all had wounds to their head indicating that somebody had hit them three times in the skull with a uh, blood instrument like a stick, and there were sticks there. Damien, according to some some accounts from Miskelly there was a walking stick and others and he says no but we knew no Damien did have a walking stick that he used that uh, well, it was different from just a regular stick the bark had been peeled away that sort of thing if he we don't know that he used that particular stick but we do know that the boys were all hit in a somewhat rich really a ritualistic fashion in the head by a stick after they'd already been one of them had been grossly mutilated the other one was cut and bleeding but all of them were beaten up badly and uh, to the point that the beatings alone probably would have killed at least uh, certainly would have killed Michael Moore almost certainly and uh, actually probably would have killed the other two uh, and uh, And that was before they were drowned. So that's a triple killing there. Doesn't apply in all the cases. Uh, Michael Moore was not stabbed. According to Jesse Miskelly, he prevented that happening. Very strangely, but he, he somehow protected this boy he was beating to death from being sliced up. Does that make sense not really but it does in the sense that somehow that crossed a line that he was not willing to cross though he was perfectly willing to pound on him uh, in a a totally brutal fashion that was going to produce his death just don't cut on him now so the the, uh, i think there's a good argument to be made that the Crime was planned. And what what was the intent of the plan? I think if you look at the confluence of uh, celestial events, the circumstances, the planned victims, the perpetrators, it's easy to come to the conclusion that there was an occult purpose in all this, even though. If you just read Kelly's account it's three teenage thugs getting drunk and bullying some kids and a fairly which is a not an unusual sort of thing I don't think certainly I wasn't I knew many instances of that happening when I was a kid and I suspect it still goes on bigger kids beat up smaller kids and gangs of bigger kids beat up smaller kids um, so that happens, and this was just, an, you could look at that and say this was an extreme case where it was carried too far. That's a reasonable supposition, and people who don't want to impute a, an occult uh, aspect to the case can hold to that position, and I'm really not going to argue with them because I can't prove otherwise. What I can show is there, were, there is reason to think that there was an occult purpose behind all this. And, okay and back to the book. For example, when a financially strapped individual who believes in magic may come to the false realization that due to magic he can rob a bank without appearing on the CCTV camera tapes. thus he takes no care to conceal his identity while robbing a bank. Magic is a cause of crime. In some cases, magic is the direct cause of a crime. This usually happens when the perpetrator becomes convinced that he has been hexed or otherwise magically victimized. The perpetrator's solution is to eliminate the individual who has hexed them. That has, that has nothing to do with this case. Crime is a part of a magical ritual. Right. Lastly, crime may be a part of a magical right. Many types of magical rights require criminal activity. In such cases, the crime is premeditated and carefully planned. In the perpetrator's mind, the crime must be carried out for successful completion of the right. Ritualistic homicides fall into this category. And I think that is probably what we're looking at here. Now we're going to get into magical circles, I'm going to read about magical circles and I'm going to stipulate from, right from the start. There's no evidence, uh, Damian Eccles actually mentioned some of the, the uh, elements you might find uh, if, it, if uh, a site is set up for a magical ride, feathers, stones, gems, you know, there might be a fire. I don't know if you mentioned fire, but uh, there might be a fire there, or something like that. Uh, there was no uh, obvious site preparation for a magical rite in in uh, Robin Hood Hills. That was obvious to in investigators after the crime, Jesse Miskelley makes no mention of any preparations beforehand. All he talks about them is them sitting around drinking. So. Uh, in that sense, there probably wasn't, almost certainly wasn't a magical circle at the scene. I have no reason to think so. Doesn't mean it wasn't a cult, an occult uh, crime. Not every uh, occult crime is like a scene from a Hammer film with Christopher Lee where he's wearing a long robe and he has a virgin up on an altar with a long knife and a, and a darkened temple with a bunch of worshippers standing around as he prepares to complete the rite. And I don't know if that particular scene's actually in any of those films, but it, it seems to me that that is a, a popular idea anyway right down to the actor, actor that might be involved in something like that. Uh, he mentions single-walled circles to keep magical power in, double-walled circles to keep magical power in, while also keeping supernatural entities out. In remote areas across the country, rural and state officers, and this book is from the late 1980s, early 1990s, it was aimed at law enforcement officials, not for public consumption. Okay. Rural and state officers are finding large circles made of stones are cut into the turf. They range in size from 5 to 75 feet in diameter. City officers are finding similar circles drawn on floors of abandoned buildings or burned into the carpets of empty houses now uh, there was an old school that burned down around this time in in west memphis but prior to it burning down they had found uh, a magical circle there uh, and a lot of occult type drawings and you can write that off as typical teenage graffiti if you wish or you could you could also argue that there were actually some somebody was actually performing a magical rite in the old dob school in West Memphis Arkansas with Damian Eccles involved with that I have no information one way or the other and I'm not going to speculate those circles these circles are not magic circles <laughs> these circles are magic circles sorry crucial elements in many criminal and non-criminal uh, magical rituals magic circles are a complex topic of great importance to law enforcement There are many types of magic circles, and many are associated with non-criminal groups. However, when circles are associated with criminal groups, a great deal can be learned about the group from its circle. The magic circle is, in essence, a church. Unlike other churches, it is temporary and portable. To occultists, the circle is an invisible, three-dimensional, magical structure which is sur- spherical in shape, Reaching above and below the ground, it is only a circle where it intersects the ground. Because the circle is invisible, occultists mark its location with a ring of stones, a line, or other mark on the ground called a circle marker. It is this circle marker that officers find in the field or empty building. The real circle, the magical structure, is erected at the start of a magical ceremony and dissembled at the end. The circle marker is left behind as it has absolutely no ritualistic significance. The marker is merely a convenience to the group to aid them in visualizing the invisible three-dimensional magic circle. Complexity of the visible circle marker indicates its patterns of use. You know, I think an important point that can be gleaned from that is the physical these physical representations that people allude to and which were not present at the west, at the scene of the murders in the west memphis three are not essential to a magical ritual being carried out uh, somebody who was sufficiently confident in visualizing their own three-dimensional sphere presumably wouldn't particularly find a need for uh, stones to be placed about just so he could reaffirm his visualization uh, is that what happened in West Memphis on May 5th 1993 I don't know but I will point it out that Damien Eccles had a lot of confidence in his magical abilities at that time simple crude circles indicate that the location was used only once and probably won't be used again Complex, well-built circles indicate a preferred ritual location that probably will be used again and again. The circles may be single or double-walled, and the construction indicates the type of magical operations for which the circle was used. Magical circles have two functions. The primary function of any magic circle is to trap and hold power. It is a containment field. This power can be magical energy generated by the group using the circle or the life energy of an animal or human whose blood is spilled inside the circle. A magic circle is also a barrier. Double circles in particular and single circles made of salt block spirit entities from entering the circle. Occultists believe that demons can't cross the lines of a double circle and that salt is a demon repellent. The double circle is commonly Used by practitioners of ceremonial magic who fear injury at the hands or cause of the demons they are calling. The basic beliefs of an occult group are revealed by the type of circle they use. Both practitioners of natural and of ceremonial magic use magic circles. And it may be difficult to tell them apart using the circle itself as the only information. Uh, by the way, Damien Echols is a ceremonial magician, and he's not just somebody who's just simply communing with the spirit of nature or whatever with his wicked buddies out in the woods as people who would be practicing a, a natural form of magic. Uh, they're the, the practitioners of the natural form of magic aren't explicitly calling up for the most part, aren't explicitly calling up spirit entities to perform various works for them. I would say, you know, they might be calling down a blessing upon them, or or, or on others, or or even a curse, perhaps. But they wouldn't necessarily be actually trying to draw uh, the, the the actual manifestation of this entity to them. I would say in general, but, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert on this. And I, you know what, I guarantee that anything I say is a generality. There are zillions of exceptions to this because there's no hard and fast rule for any of these practices. Anybody who says Satanists believe and do certain things There's no reason to believe that, and there's no reason to say that that's true for Wiccans either, even though you can make a lot of generalities. I mean, it's not even true for Christians to a certain extent. Uh, And there's a lot more uniformity uh, with creed and dogma and practice in Christianity than there is in the occult sphere. If the officers are certain, based on other evidence at the scene, such as inverted crosses or other satanic paraphernalia that they are dealing with Satanists, the following is generally true. 1. Satanists using single circles have no fear of demons and practice either animal or human sacrifice. 2. Satanists using double circles do fear demons and may or may not practice blood sacrifice. There's no set size for magic circles generally speaking the circle is created large enough for the group to fit inside comfortably and to carry out whatever activities are required for the ritual magic circles may have a fire pin in the center and may also have an altar an altar located on the west side of the circle indicates that the site is satanic though the circle marker is not ritualistic there is a wide range of possible embellishments some functional To aid in ceremonial procedures and some decorative to aid in visualization or mood setting all church buildings are not the same neither are all magic circles field officers searching circle locations must be alert for disturbed earth in the vicinity of the circle as criminal occultists commonly bury animal sacrifice remains in pits near the circle Officers should also be sure to sift through the ashes of the fire pit if the circle has one. Searching for bones, scraps of paper, or scraps of clothing. Field officers should be alert for footprints inside the circle. Practitioners of non-criminal natural magic generally move in a clockwise direction called decile by occultist. Satanists, both criminal and non-criminal, generally move widdershins or counterclockwise. The direction of travel of any footprints visible inside a circle site thus indicates the general nature of the ceremony conducted at the site and officers should take care to record this information in their field notes and this says there's no indication uh, that any of this is relevant to the west memphis 3 site but i'm going to read it anyway sometimes a small triangle three be it across or less, is found outside the circle. This is a containment field for especially dangerous demons who are believed to be able to cross the lines of a double circle. And down here there's a note. There are only four who can do this. Beleth, Furfur, Shax, and Harez. Uh, the triangle is generally found on the east side of the circle but may vary with the magical operation or the area of the country where the ritual was held. If the double circle is located in an outdoor location, and if there are sophisticated occult symbols and writings between the lines of the circle, then the site is associated with ceremonial magic. The grimoires require extremely sophisticated circles, sometimes drawn within geometric shapes for their ceremonies. Such ceremonies may or may not be criminal. Some ritual chambers lack a magic circle but contain small circles less than three feet in diameter. These small circles, often containing inverted pentagrams, are conjuring circles. They are not magic circles at all. They are magical symbols that show a demon where to manifest. Conjuring circles are used by groups that have no fear of demons and thus do not use magic circles. Officers can think of them as the magical equivalent of helipads. They show the demons where they are supposed to land. Generally speaking, circles found in remote locations are the work of adult groups, while circles found in cities tend to be the work of juvenile groups. Field officers should be aware if they can encounter a non-criminal ceremony in progress, they should not step across the boundaries of the circle when making inquiries. Stepping across the circle breaks it. An occultist believes that breaking the circle not only destroys a ceremony being conducted within it, but puts the occultist himself at risk from supernatural forces. Breaking the circle of an otherwise peaceful group may elicit a violent response. You know, and I have no idea how valid most of what I just read is. I suspect there are so many exceptions to these rules and... I don't know how many, I doubt there's a whole lot of officers who just come stumbling upon occult rituals out in the middle of the woods. I'm sure it's got to happen occasionally, just as all sorts of things happen occasionally, but it doesn't seem to be something that would be common. It's not something that most officers would ever encounter in the course of a very long career uh and and probably some areas of the country i'm certain that in some areas of the country it might be more likely than others generally speaking you wouldn't think arkansas would be one of the places where that would be likely however there was a little pocket of uh, occultist in uh, west memphis at the time and there was also a pocket of occultists in jonesboro which is right up the road uh, they were still active a few years ago when I last checked. Uh, and they were the same, a lot of the same people were active back in the early 90s. And in fact, tried to open a magic shop at a really bad time in the summer of 1993. It was a really bad time uh, right after these killings in Jonesboro and got into a dispute with the landlord. And there were demonstrations about it and some local news coverage. And then it all sort of faded away after a while. But they're still around, so they're you know, and the, and obviously, I mean, I know they're occultists in Memphis, uh, and they were there was an active group over there up until a few years ago at least, and may still be there. And get something a little more relevant. I think the devil and demons. Different types of satanic groups view the devil in different ways. Some groups see him as a fallen angel, and others worship him as a god. The first view is Christian in nature. In fact, to be a Satanist, an individual must first have been a Christian because Satan is part of Christian theology. Thus, Satanists usually believe in God. However, their opinions about God range wildly, widely, from terror to disdain. Satanists who view the devil as a fallen angel have a New Testament view of earth, heaven, and hell With a unique perspective, they believe Satan was originally the highest-ranking archangel who rebelled against God along with about one-third of the angelic population. The reason for the rebellion was that uh, God was forcing men into moral codes that went against their nature and that Satan supported a more natural, carnal moral code for humans. Such Satanists view Satan as an advocate and friend of mankind. And a lot, of that, a lot of that belief, I think, comes from, speaking of Paradise Lost, John Milton's epic poem about the fall of Satan, heavily influenced uh, Western views of Satan from that era, ever since that era. Satanists who ascribe to this theological view believe that Satan and his troops lost the war in heaven and were cast down to earth or hell as described in the Holy Bible, that there will be a second war which Satan will win. By being on the winning side of this second war from the start, they assure that they will be rulers of heaven and earth after the victory. The other major camp of Satanists are dualists. They view the devil as a god equal in power, but different in motivation and method from the Christian god. Both groups believe in demons. Demons are to Satan what angels are to God. They run errands, bring messages, and protect human worshipers who are aligned with Satan. Demons are of interest to law enforcement personnel because Satanists believe that demons can be called at will, if the caller is willing to pay the fee for their appearance this fee is blood. You know, Damien Eccles described himself back in I believe it's I believe it's mental health notes from 1992 it might have been 1993 but I think it's 1992 uh, somewhere in Exhibit 500 he describes himself as a demonologist of course uh, his old girlfriend Deanna Holcomb described him as a black magician, he called said he called himself a gray magician, but he's just sort to cover cover his tracks, so to speak. Uh, Damien today talks about angels, but I th- it would be good to understand when he talks about angels. It's not really clear. What kind of angels he's talking about? In other words, uh, if you believe in uh, fallen angels, then you can believe in angels that serve your purposes for uh, to gain power, gain prestige, to serve evil purposes. More, more to the point, to serve egoistic purposes, purposes contrary to. Uh, prevailing wisdom of society you know, they they, if you want to be a transgressor and you believe in all this you would you might call upon an angel who's actually a demon uh, and, I, and he, I think he's leaving out in this definition though he may get into it a little later it seems I mean I read this earlier and it seems like we're getting into the history of Satanism, and he gets into this, but he doesn't make it very clear here. They're they're non-theological Satanists, and the Church of Satan is def. He sort of leaves all them them out completely out of this so far, anyway. And uh, and anything I'm going to read today, but uh, the Church of Satan is non-theological basis and there seems to be, you know, they, they do talk somewhat about magic, but it's not really clear exactly how that would work without a spiritual sphere. And, uh, but seem to regard, he, he does get into this a little bit and I'll I'll read when I read, but they get into the idea that, uh, there's a Luciferian principle, uh, that's that involves man, its humanistic values, and uh, it pits man, man's interest against God's interest and does, doesn't find those compatible. And actually, the idea they would view God's interest as being a, a sham, basically, that that's just a, a myth that's been perpetrated on the populace to keep them under control and to break through that control and become who you really are would embrace the luciferian principle. And again, that's that's there's got some elements of Nietzsche in there, but uh, I would say that's a perversion, certainly a perversion of what Nietzsche wrote and believed if you if you take it in the totality, which is uh, again very difficult thing to do, but uh, you one has to at least try for even to talk about that. Uh, He's going to get into the history of Satanism here. He's going to talk about the Knights Templar, who I think were just simply smeared as Satanists, but actually weren't. Uh, The Inquisition, Black Mass, Spiritualism, uh, and the Golden Dawn and Aleister Crowley. And I think I'm going to read on through that. Don't really see spiritualism as being Satanism in any meaningful sense, but let's see what he has to say about it. Uh, Satanism is a fully developed religion. It is protected by the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. It has a deity, except when it doesn't. Rituals, dogma, holy books, holidays, and a history. If Satanism is a constitutionally protected religion. Officers investigating criminal Satanism must be extremely careful to investigate only the criminal activities of individual members, not the Satanic groups themselves. Um, And of course, you know, in Church of Satan, our Temple of Sad, members or leaders have gotten to uh, come under criminal scrutiny They invoke their First Amendment rights, which does tend to scare people off a bit, sometimes very effectively. Officers who violate the perpetrator's constitutional rights during investigation risk, loss of the case in court, and cause the charges to be dismissed with prejudice, barring any further attempt at prosecution. It is important for field officers to understand the history of Satanism in order to better understand the criminal Satanists they are investigating. Like most established religions, Satanism has a rich history which has an impact on its current practice. Historically, Satanism and Christianity are opposite sides of the same coin. Satanism relies almost entirely on Christian theology for its dogma and even to some extent for its rituals. Therefore, it can... Safely be said that Satanism is less than 2,000 years old. The historical record of Satanism is spotty, but it is unlikely that any current Satanic groups have direct ties to historical groups. However, existing historical records often serve as inspiration to modern groups as a basis for their rituals and theology. You know, um, there's probably, a. am sure there are some Bible scholars who might argue that Satan predates the Christian era. I mean you know there, there there were there's a certain amount of warring of spirits in the uh, in the Old Testament so um, won't get into that too much but you know I' I'm just there's a lot of things he says here that I've just raised all sorts of questions. Um, The Knights Templar, the first major historical records of Satanism, come from trial transcripts of members of a Catholic order called the Knights Templar. The Templars were originally European crusaders who formed their order in the Middle East in 1188 to became warrior monks, guarding the pilgrimage routes to the Holy Land. After the East was lost to Islam, the Templars became the most powerful and wealthy Catholic order in Europe. Members had high posts in the royal courts, served as papal, papal emissaries, and hired themselves out as mercenary soldiers. Over time, the order became banker to the kings of Europe, advancing huge sums of money to finance wars and dowries. By the early 1300s, the Templars had become so powerful that they were feared by both church and secular authorities. Pope Clement V himself feared the Templars because they had become Quote, a church within a church, and King Philip IV of France hideously in debt to them covered, coveted their wealth and belongings. Between them, the Pope and King arranged for charges of heresy to be brought against the order in court, the courts of the Inquisition. At daybreak of October 13, 1307, virtually all the Templars in Europe were rounded up and charged with secretly worshipping the devil, Whether or not the Templars were actually involved in Satanism is a question still debated by scholars. Most modern occultists believe they were, though historical evidence suggests that the trials were kangaroo courts with trumped-up charges and falsified evidence. Okay, well that makes more sense. The court presented evidence that the Templars desecrated the cross, engaged in homosexual activity, and worshipped a god called Baphomet. The Templar trials introduced the world to the term Baphomet. The word's origins are unknown, but the term is still in use today and is used to describe the goat-like face drawn inside sophisticated pentagrams that have become a national symbol of Satanism in contemporary America. In fact, there was a representation of Baphomet found in Damien Eccles' bedroom. After a six-year inquiry, the court found against the Templars, crushing the order, seizing its assets, and burning many of its members at the stake. The last words of the Templar leader, Grand Master Jacques de Molay, as he was burning at the stake were a curse upon the Pope and the French king. He maintained his innocence and the innocence of his order and summoned Pope and King to meet with him before the throne of God within one year. Interestingly, within one year, both the Pope and the King were dead. The Inquisition. The Inquisition ran from 1200 to 1600 AD, but it was at its height in the mid to late 1480s. The function of the Inquisition was to stamp out heresy, and it viewed many non Catholic. Any non-Catholic viewpoint as satanic, thus pagans, Protestants, Jews, atheists, and maybe even a few real Satanists were labeled witches and were exterminated in large numbers. The death toll from the Inquisition's activities is estimated to be between two hundred thousand and three hundred thousand persons. In a medieval form of zero tolerance, the property of the convicted was confiscated by the Inquisition, which was funded entirely by seized assets. In time, the members of the Inquisition became more concerned with job security than with heresy, and eventually the Inquisition was discredited and brought to a halt. But at its height in the year 1486, two Dominican friars, Jacob Springer and Heinrich Kramer wrote a handbook for Inquisitors entitled Malleus Maleficarum. Malleus was written shortly after the invention of the printing press. In modern terms, it was the first bestseller and remained on the bestseller list for 34 years. It was translated into German, French, Italian, and English. The book ran through 13 editions between 1486 and 1520, and another 16 editions were printed bef- between 1574 and 1669. This massive book, A Quarter of a Million Words, had two parts. Half the book was a guide for torturers to use in obtaining statements during interrogation, a standard operating practice for any trial in this period of history. The other half of the book provided detailed profiles based on commonly held folklore of the times, Of the alleged theology and activities of witches. The book thus had the effect of elevating mythology to the level of fact. Although the book was written by two Catholics for the Catholic Inquisition, Malleus was adopted by the emerging Protestant movement as the standard authority on devil worship. Thus equipped with a torture manual and preconceived notions of what witches did, witchcraft trials across Europe uncovered remarkably similar activities. For the most part, the details provided by the witchcraft trials never surfaced again. Example, 2,000 women fly to a mountaintop for an orgy with the devil. But some of the basic theology outlined in Maoist is still part of American society today and is part of the general public's commonly held assumptions about Satan worship. Examples include the devil comes in person to satanic rituals, personal demons guard members, the names of worshipers are written in the black book, members are given magic powers, meetings are held on full moons, and Satanists make a pact with the devil. I will mention one of the uh, occultic elements that's possible within the May 5th framework is that uh, there was a rising full moon that evening. Sunset was coming at at sunset and and, uh, moonrise were within two minutes or so of each other. Uh, right about the time the boys would have been killed they might have been dead by then but it was about 10 till it was around 10 till 8 that evening it was was getting it was very late in the day but uh, uh, they may have still been alive then if if not they had been killed just shortly before this Um, and May 5th 1993 is also synonymous with uh, the date of what's called Old Beltane, and in fact it is the date when all the celestial uh, markers for this particular pagan holiday are in perfect accord. I can't really explain this, the, the, all the different angles and everything. I mean, I, there's a formula. Maybe I'm just not interested enough or maybe I'm just not smart enough to understand it. I, you know, I guess I would have to be schooled a little bit more in astrology to really get it, But ba- or, or astronomy. But basically, uh, when certain celestial elements are in the right sort of alignment, that is the date for uh, Beltane. And it occurs at regular intervals and it occurs on May 5th. Beltane is often celebrated on April 30th, May 1st. And a lot of people poo-poo the idea that the Beltane, there's any Beltane connection with the West Memphis 3 case. I can't prove that one way or the other. I just know that Damian Echols is probably almost certainly aware of how the Beltane dating occurred and may well have been aware of how uh, the uh, it's calculated and uh, like the idea of showing up there for a ritual sacrifice on right as the moon is rising and the uh, full moon is rising and the sun is setting. The black mass. The first truly modern criminal Satanism is seen in 17th century France and interestingly was uncovered by the first modern style police operation. The group and the human sacrificial rights called black masses that they practiced were accidentally uncovered by police commissioner Nicolas de Lorraine during an investigation into widespread poisoning deaths among the French nobility. King Louis XIV ordered the investigation and directed De La to stop the importation of poison into France. Poison importation at the time was a big business run by highly organized poison trafficking rings, not unlike modern drug cartels. De La investigation of a poison importing ring in Paris, using undercover police women and modern surveillance tactics. Led him to the largest, best organized, and most sophisticated criminal satanic group ever discovered. A special court of inquiry called the Chambre Diante was convened to hear evidence in the case. The Chambre has the distinction of being the first witchcraft trial to accept only real evidence rather than the rumor and innuendo accepted as evidence at Inquisition trials. There's a note down here about Black Mass. The term Black Mass originally referred to a Requiem Mass, Funeral Mass. It first gained a sinister reputation in the Middle Ages when it was believed that if a priest said a Requiem Mass for a living person, that person would die. Later, the term was used exclusively for evil Masses, and the term Black Mass evolved into a label for any satanic ritual. Okay, speaking of the the... Speaking of the records of this Special Court of Inquiry, it says, Its records and De La Rainey's meticulous record-keeping of police activities give a clear picture of the activities of the satanic group uncovered by De La Rainey. The investigation and subsequent trials revealed and made public the details of the group's black masses, which were human sacrificial rites using babies and young children as offerings. The records of the court and police have survived and may have served as the prototype for all satanic worship to follow. Oh, that's quite a smear. Uh, the black masses took place in a rundown estate in Paris. When De La Rainey's police raided the site, they found a satanic chapel, laboratories for poison manufacture, rooms where abortions were performed, and a huge furnace in the basement where testimony revealed was used To destroy the bodies of sacrificed children. The black masses were paid for by French aristocrats, mostly women, and were operated by private entrepreneurs, middle-class businessmen, and priests as a business. By modern definitions, these were uh, ritual criminal, and he uses these abbreviations that I've now forgotten. well, let's just say that by an iron of definitions, these were uh, uh, written, uh, occult crimes of various sorts. The two demons worshipped were Astaroth, a female demon, and Asmodeus, a male demon called the Slayer of Men. The altar in the Paris chapel was specially modified. Its top surface was a black covered mattress, making it more comfortable for the client to lie on during the ceremony. The lady of station who paid for the mass lay naked on this altar while the priest consecrated the host by inserting it into her vagina. At the height of the ceremony, a child was held above her. Its throat was slit and the priest chanted, Ashtaroth, Ashtaroth. I beg you to accept the sacrifice of this child, which we now offer to you so that we may receive the the things that we ask. A portion of the blood which cascaded down over the client's naked body was captured in a chalice to serve as the wine of holy communion, and there was some talk at the uh, in the West Memphis Three case of uh, blood being captured and used in this manner at the scene. And there's really no evidence of that, but there was talk of it from various parties. Uh, Catherine aka okay, a.k.a., the. The widow, Montvoisson, commonly called La Voisson, the female leader of the group claimed that between 2,000 and 2,500 children were sacrificed between the years 1666 and 1679. She was executed by public burning. And It notes here, it is possible that many of these child victims may have been aborted fetuses, as LaVosan ran an abortion clinic in addition to her other activities. And I can just imagine the the apologist for all this saying, well, you know, really these were poor persecuted abortionists. (laughs) I I, I haven't done any research on this, but I bet bet the meme's out there somewhere. Unfortunately for Dela Rene, many members of the French nobility, including the The king's ex-mistress were involved with the satanic group, and the king cut short the investigation to avoid embarrassment to the throne. The exact size of the group is unknown, but 50 priests were implicated, and more than 300 other persons were arrested. About a third of them were found guilty and were sentenced, 36 of them receiving the death penalty. The rest received punishments ranging from prison time to slavery in the galleys. None of the aristocratic clientele was convicted. It is generally believed that Deloraney's efforts did not crush French Satanism but merely drove it underground. Seven years later, when the king was seventy, he ordered that all records associated with the fair be destroyed. He ordered that uh, all records associated with fair be destroyed. Luckily, his order was mostly disregarded and many of the records survived. Okay, we have a part here about spiritualism. In the 19th century, a religion called spiritualism was started in the United States as a hoax by two sisters, Kate and Maggie Fox. Before the sisters admitted that spiritualism was a hoax, it had caught on in the United States and spread to Europe. The primary activity of spiritualism was communicating with the dead through a medium. Spiritualism survived well into the 1920s after gaining popularity during World War I when thousands of families eager to believe their sons had survived death on the battlefield became involved. It is generally believed that spiritualism set the stage for Satanism in America by creating an environment in which the supernatural was accepted as commonplace by large numbers of people even though the two religions had little in common. Spiritualism has recently been reborn and is now called channeling, which is really old hat at this point, I think. Uh, okay, uh, that's really very questionable, him just even including that, but okay. Uh, the Golden Dawn and Alistair Crowley, at the turn of a century, a small group of Englishmen formed a short-lived organization called the Order of the Golden Dawn. Though it lasted only 28 years, 1887 to 1915, and its membership never exceeded 300, it is probably the most significant and famous occult group of all time. The members translated dozens of grimoires into English. Members included the poet W.B. Yeats, writer Algernon Blackwood, astronomer William Peck, novelist Dion Fortune, occult scholar A.E. Waite, and language expert Samuel Liddell MacGregor. Most of the members practiced black magic. A notable exception to this rule was Aleister Crowley, a young man who was later expelled from the Golden Dawn. Crowley founded a sex magic group which still exists today called the Ordo Templi Orientis. OTO in Britain and in America, and there are, it's not hard to find chapters around, scattered around the country. There's one that's not very far from me, and uh, Damien's new home city of New Orleans. He also started a group called the Silver Star, R R Argentinum Astrum, which abbreviated its title as A A, but with Uh, little pyramid symbols before after both the A's Um, and uh, William Ramsey revealed a number of years ago that Eccles was involved in the OTO and while he was in prison I don't know he he certainly hasn't made any public uh, pronouncement about it I'm aware of in many years, but I don't see anything that he's doing that's incompatible with what the OTO seems to practice. Um, Crowley was a black magician, and more than any other single person has had a major impact on modern criminal Satanism. Crowley was not a Satanist; he thought he was Satan. That I that's. That's a, a generality that's really hard to, uh, to to. I mean, I don't think it's really valid. Uh, it, you can you can make an argument. I mean, you can make some arguments. He said things at time. He referred to himself as the b six six six. At times, he seemed to take on this persona of being Satan. He certainly took on a persona at times of being satanic and. Uh, pretty generally, was Luciferian. Uh, and he made a number of statements that it would indicate that he was a Satanist, but again, you could look elsewhere and find statements that indicate he wasn't. So, you know, he liked to play, well, he's very much like Damien Echols. He liked to play little games, cover up what he's doing with something else, give false impressions, throw off a vaguely sinister character, well, I don't think Eccles is that vaguely sinister either, but but Crowley was not particularly vaguely sinister. He reveled in being called the wickedest man in the world, but the truth is, is he was he was just kind of a a bad guy, a bad fellow to know, a poor friend, a drug addict, a troublemaker. But you know, I. And there's some deaths that are sort of linked to him in general fashion, but there's no evidence he directly murdered anybody, for instance. He wasn't involved in what we would think of usually as criminal activities. But he was a very sketchy guy. Also, he was very learned, very erudite, and wrote, wrote a lot of books that are still very influential today. There's no doubt about that. You know, he's was a... In his younger days, he was a mountaineer, very athletic, arguably at least reasonably decent-looking, and uh, and you know, it inherited quite a bit of money. Uh, his father was a high-ranking, uh, high-ranking. I wasn't going to say official, but his father was had a high standing in the the Plymouth Brethren, which are very strict fundamentalist Protestant group, and. Uh, Crowley credited his upbringing in that group with his reaction to it. And if his reaction could be termed Satanism, then I guess he was a Satanist. He certainly seemed to believe in God, and, and Eccles seems to believe in God, but they don't certainly, neither one, practice uh, the predominant mainstream religion in any sense of the word and in fact much of what both of them do runs directly contrary to it so if that's satanism then so be it and my, some of it may be explicitly satanist at times it seemed to be with crowley and i'm not so sure that's not true with eccles either though it's, he's not he's not really out there saying he actually is one i doubt if he would deny that he was one um, it, says, it says about Crowley, in his day he instigated one scandal after another and was expelled from every major country in Europe. Newspapers at the time labeled him the wickedest man in the world. Many modern Satanists, both criminal and non-criminal, look to the writings of the self-proclaimed beast, Aleister Crowley. Crowley was a prolific writer, penning more than 52 books all of which are still available today. In fact, Crowley's books are more popular today than than they were when he was alive. Crowley was an advocate of human sacrifice. For nearly all purposes, human sacrifice is best, he said in his major work, Magic in Theory and Practice. A male child of perfect innocence and high intelligence is the most satisfactory and suitable victim. And of all the things I've read today, that is most relevant to that particular statement is most relevant to this case. Aleister Crowley, who Damien Eccles has revered since he was a child, wrote, and I'm sure it's his best-selling book, most widely available book, probably the best-known book. For nearly all purposes, human sacrifice is best. A male child of perfect innocence and high intelligence is the most suitable and satisfactory and suitable victim. And I know his defenders um, try to rework that as, well, he's really talking about, he's couching He's couching masturbation as a form of child sacrifice. I think he's having it both ways. Uh, he gets to talk about child sacrifice and anybody challenges him on it, which I'm not sure they did at the time, but if anybody challenges him on it, he can say, well, I'm just talking about uh, the deaths of you know male fertilizing cells not really children, sperm. I'm talking about the death of sperm cells. And so he has always has an out, but, you know, he did write that. It's very unlikely that most of the people reading that read it and interpreted it in any other way than the way it seems to be, expli- the way it seems to explicitly advocate the sacrifice of small boys, which is what happened on May 5th, 1993. Thank you.